going to spend some time looking in the Word of God. So if you've brought a Bible with you, uh, you could be finding that. If not, the, the, the scripture that we look at will come on the screen. Okay, so if you did have a Bible with you, you could be turning to the book of 1 Timothy in the New Testament. We're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 5. Not all of it, I hasten to add. This time we're just going for a few verses. So 1 Timothy chapter 5, I'm going to read verse 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if, he, as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. We are going to look at these two verses this morning. Uh, it was a while ago now that we were in uh, chapter 4. Actually, we looked at a whole of chapter 4 in one go, which were many uh, encouragements, exhortations, instructions uh, to Timothy's life, into Timothy's uh, ministry, to be a good minister, Paul was saying, train yourself, train yourself to be godly in all sorts of ways, train yourself, don't neglect the gift that God's given you, Um, don't let people look down on you because you're young, set an example for uh, the believers in all uh, manner of ways, Physical training, Paul said. Physical training is of some value, but training ourselves in godliness holds value for all things, all seasons. And that was uh, Paul's encouragement to Timothy when he wrote this letter. And a few weeks ago now, we we looked at applying those encouragements into our own lives, that we want to uh, to train ourselves to be godly. We want to train ourselves to be uh, good ministers, whatever we're called to, whatever role uh, or responsibility we might have in, in God's kingdom um, and in this world, uh, we want to train ourselves in godliness. And he's continuing to bring some, um, some instructions, some encouragements to Timothy. The, the scope of them starts to broaden. He's starting to talk then more about not just how Timothy is to conduct himself, but how we are to conduct ourselves in, in God's family. Back in chapter 3, the, if you like, the very heartbeat or the very purpose that Paul wrote this letter is made clear in, in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. He says there, I hope to come to you soon. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So there's always this sense, this letter was never just for Timothy. It was never just, Timothy, here's how you should conduct yourself in this particular role, this particular responsibility that you have. But the concern is for the whole church. And it's understood then that as Timothy's reading the letter, when he's sharing it with the church, it's as though the the church there in Ephesus, were reading the letter over Timothy's shoulder. It was addressed to Timothy, but it was helping them as, as well. You know, Paul hopes to come, but says, his desire through writing this letter is that 
you will know how people ought to conduct themselves uh, in God's household, which is the church of the living God. You might remember before, I brought some um, memory match cards and looked at, really, who we are has to match, then, how we are conducting ourselves. Uh, where there's a mismatch, if we're not understanding who we are, then the, the way of relating will, will get distorted one way or another. So, Paul's underlining there that the church is God's household, God's family. The work of the gospel is to make us and to draw us into God's family. That's how we're to understand what it is to be part of uh, a church. It's the household of God. Uh, This is what has so excited Paul uh, when he's written to this same church before. Um, So in in Ephesians, he's spelling out the gospel. He's spelling out the wonders of all that Jesus has done for us. So isn't it amazing, the, uh, the forgiveness, the redemption, the love that's been shown. Isn't it amazing that God chose us before the foundation of the world? Uh, to be holy, but as he goes through what amazes him, it's not just personally we have received forgiveness, but I think what's so amazing is to see how God has joined people together. And he, he presents the most profound example of the gospel doing this. He says, well, once there were two groups, very hostile, there's a, a wall of hostility between them. There's, uh, there's Jew and Gentile. And they are profoundly at odds with each other. There's, there's no peace, there's uh, not much common ground, and so there's suspicion, wariness. You, a Jew would keep their distance, politely perhaps, but they'd keep their distance from the Gentile, and the Gentile would not really want much to do with the Jew. There, there was this fundamental hostility, and, and, and Paul is reflecting on that and saying, the wonder of the Gospel is that it was God's way of bringing about his ultimate purpose, which was to make one out of these two hostile groups, is to make one family. This is what he's uh, looking at in Ephesians uh, chapter 2. He says there in verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly... You who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their Hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one 
spirit. So that's what is exciting Paul. He sees in this gospel God's great plan to bring people together. Previously, separate, previously some very far away, previously with, with hostility and enmity between them. And in the gospel, enemies have become friends. Now they've become more than friends. The gospel doesn't just mean we're friends. It's making us one. One new man, one household, one family where every member belongs. And he, he goes on to say there, also in chapter 2, verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. That's who we are. That's what the gospel has achieved. Now, all these years later, Timothy is back in Ephesus dealing with all manner of problems that have kind of bubbled up and come to the surface. It's become an ugly mess, really. And Paul is writing to Timothy saying, remind the church who they are. Remind them that we're God's household. We're God's family. There's a, there's a way, therefore, of relating and of being together which matches with that truth. That's who we are. That's what we're to understand. And therefore, how we relate flows out of it. You can imagine, perhaps, that actually, in Ephesus, that's become forgotten. They've kind of forgotten who they are. And therefore... The way they relate with each other has become has become problematic. As a church, if a church drifts away from the grace of God, then that sense of family and belonging and being one gets lost, and accidentally, perhaps, rather than the wonder and the glory of two becoming one, it's kind of a pulling apart again and one become two, or maybe more than that. And so many of the letters in the New Testament were written because churches were kind of drifting a little bit from the gospel, and it's bringing a number of issues, and it's, it's kind of separating people out. It's one becoming two. So Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians and says, I, you know, I hear that there are quarrels among you, there are divisions among you. One says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow uh, Cephas, or I follow Apollos. They're starting to pull themselves apart. And there, it was to do with almost perhaps a, a more of a celebrity culture. Which leader are you going to choose? And which one are you going to shun or ignore? And so divisions are emerging. Later on, in the same letter to the Corinthians, is so actually there's another di- division emerging. Rather than being one body, you're, you're pulling apart, you're separating out, you're, you're becoming rich and poor. When you get together to celebrate the Lord's table, some are getting drunk and some are going hungry. There are these cracks are emerging, if you like, and a way of relating has, has become damaged because they drifted away from the grace of God. So this distinction gets made. Again, perhaps by accident, but it's still there. The rich and the poor. Some people not being remembered. 
Some people not being included, getting to the meeting after a hard day's work to discover that those who have, have already consumed what was meant to be there for everybody to eat. Then Paul says it's not good. Uh, in Galatians, or in, in the letter to the Galatians, Paul is addressing the issue again of, of Jew and Gentile. So this, this ethnic division is starting to emerge again. As, as, as divisions are created there. No, the gospel has brought you together. It, you shouldn't require uh, Gentiles to be circumcised in order to become Jews so that they might therefore become Christian. That's, that's it's not just unnecessary. It's, there's an ugliness to it and it's, it's drifting away from the gospel. Paul even recounts a moment when he's had to challenge Peter on it. So Peter came to Antioch, and to start with, he was just in amongst the whole body. But then when some Jewish believers came, he started to separate himself from the Gentiles, just spending time with the Jew, Jewish believers. Paul says, I confronted him to his face, because he clearly wasn't in the right. A bit of a challenge there. It's easy, isn't it, just to default back to a way of being, or to set hurdles up. In order to be part of God's kingdom, you've got to become more like me. And then perhaps you can become part of what God's doing here. Uh, and then in, in the letter to the Philippians, the Philippians who are a very encouraging church, I don't know that they're drifting very much, but he's still able to say later on in the letter, Euodia and Syntyche, he's speaking to two, two ladies, saying, I, I urge you, I plead with you, agree together in the Lord. So maybe there's a, a church there that is just starting to separate into two different groups, those who agree with Euodia and those who side with Syntyche. Just a, just, well, who knows what the disagreement was about? may not have been some profound doctrine, but nevertheless there's this crack emerging. Paul says, oh by the way, you must agree, I'm, you're writing to the whole church, he singles them out, and, whoo, uh, Singles, singles them out and says, you really need to agree together. Don't, don't just allow this friction to develop. You know, we're, we're a family, we're, we're a household, we are, we're together. And we want how we are to be a demonstration to the world this is what the gospel achieves. This is what the gospel does. Yes, personal forgiveness and relationship with God, but also it knits us together into a family and that's also reason for rejoicing. So thank you God for what you've done in Christ for me. Thank you God that you've, you've, you've knitted us together. It says in the Psalms, Psalm 68, that the, the Lord, um, what does it say? Let me, rather than paraphrase and Essentially, trip myself up. Psalm 58, 68, and verse 5, talking of God saying, A father to the fatherless, defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing and so on. But that line there, that God sets the lonely in families. The, the preceding verse demonstrates actually the experience of family life it's not always pain-free. There are those who are fatherless. There are, there are widows. Um, we could add to that list where people, where, where, where family life has involved some challenge. And we're then told God, uh, God sets the lonely in family. We all 
have or had a, a mum and dad. We all, we're all put into a family in the very first instance. Now, what we're looking at here, back in the New Testament in Timothy, is what the family of God is to be like, where lonely are to be brought in, the fatherless, the widow, or the orphan, the stranger, from any and every background, people knitted into community. That's who we are. And I think Paul was excited about it, and I think that's something to, to excite us about as well. So, so then as a church family, or as the, the household of God, how do we relate with each other? Or perhaps, considering these few verses, what do we learn from what Paul says to Timothy? I'm going to, there are three things I'll drop in as we go. I think there are three things that, that can affect that should affect how we relate as being part of God's uh, family. And the first is respect. Timothy has been given the authority to teach and to direct the affairs of this church. And, and that will involve appointing leaders. It may even involve um, unappointing some of them like Hymenaeus and Alexander. And so there's going to be times when Timothy needs to confront and correct. But Paul says as well in verse 12 of chapter 4, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. So he has this responsibility, but he's probably younger than many people in the church. Now, that can be kind of stretched out and we can think of him as like 18 or something. In all likelihood, he was in his prime, which as we know is just late 30s. Um, possibly 40. Uh, you won't see that precisely in the text. Anyway, forgive me. Um, so there's clearly lots of people in the church that are, that are younger than him and lots of people in the church that are older than him. And he's told... Uh, to speak to an older man as if he were your, as if he were your father. And then in verse 2, to treat older women as mothers. So how is, he to, how is he to treat those who are older than he is? He may have more responsibility or authority in the life of the church, but how is he going to speak to people who are older than he is when he's teaching, when he's directing the church, when he's perhaps cor- correcting and confronting? I, in my previous vocation... In my early 20s, uh, I, I had a certain responsibility or authority, and I was often meeting one, men older than I was, one-to-one, um, to, to, to supervise them for a certain length of time. And I can remember one particular situation when I, when I didn't heed this, um, this instruction. I, I did need to bring correction. Uh, I did need to bring an appropriate challenge, but I was speaking, or I was relating to a man who was decades older than I was, and I didn't regard what Paul was saying right here, and learnt the hard way an important lesson. It, it behoves me, um, even if I was bringing correction to this guy, to do so in a way that was respecting the fact 
He's been on the planet much longer than I have. So, we might think, well, how, how do you speak to your father or mother? How did you speak to your father and mother? We're not given loads of details here, so it's, it's easy to kind of stumble in and think, well, oh, I'll, I'll just treat an older person like I tra- treat my father. I think, well, what, does that mean just going up to someone later and, and pulling on them, saying, can we go yet? Or, or oh, you're so embarrassing, or something like that. I think what Paul's getting at, I think what Paul is meaning is that respect is due to someone but respect is due to anyone simply because they are older than you are we might think of um, respect as being something that is earned whatever the position that somebody may may have whether that's to do with somebody's age or uh, some authority they've been given to, to govern we may think that respect is something that has to be earned. In other words, it, we feel justified in, in withholding it until it's become really clear to us that this person is worthy of it. Um, well, not addressing the issue of age per se, but just looking in, uh, in Romans chapter 13 and verse 7. Paul writes there, Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Today in our culture, certainly here in the UK, I think there's a, a tendency to think and believe that we're equal and therefore there, there's no differences. The, the emphasis is... There's no difference. There's no difference between a man and a woman. There's no difference between the young and the old. There's, there's just no difference. So you shouldn't have to treat anybody any differently at all. But I think the Bible would say respect is due to those who are older than you. I think I owed respect to this older man that I once supervised whilst working for the probation service even though I had a certain authority and even though uh, some of his conduct hadn't been fantastic, and that's what obviously required uh, coming to me, it was a, your punishment is, go and see Dan for six months. Um, I owed him a respect. And that's, I think, what Paul is getting at here in the life of the church. Now, respect, respecting someone doesn't mean being scared intimidated if it's that then you see actually what's just going to happen in the life of the church is that people pull apart and I'll just relate to my peers and I'll respect my peers and I'm, I'm just I may respect formally those who are older than me or in different positions but um, but I'm just a bit wary it's I don't want to get it wrong um, it's not talking about f- fearful intimidation and it's not talking about an absence of fun or humour in, a, in healthy family life, it's possible to be cheeky with dad sometimes, have a bit of banter. But it's also appropriate just to know there are lines that don't get crossed. Paul's saying here, do not rebuke an older man harshly. It's like, 
in my mind's eye, that involves telling someone off with a wagging finger. Instead, Paul says, well, exhort him. Exhorting is much more like inviting someone along a different path. Rather than go that way, why don't we, let's go this way. It's, it's not this upfront challenge, how dare you, you shouldn't do this, don't go there. It speaks to an older person, I mean, I'm not saying you speak to a younger person like that either, but just exaggerating to make the point. It's far more appealing to somebody, inviting someone, even if the essence of that is still trying to correct or bring challenge. So, how do we relate? Well, we relate with, with respect. In the way that we speak, in the way that we are. Kind of showing an appropriate deference to someone who's older, uh, older than we are, not overlooking. How else? Well, Paul, uh, Paul goes on also and, and mentions how Timothy, how therefore we, are to uh, treat those who are younger than us. Treat younger men as brothers. Treat younger women, uh, younger women as sisters. Siblings, in other words. Now again, without much unpacking there, we might just think about how we were treated, or how we treated our brothers and sisters if we had, uh, if, if we had them in a, in a family that we grew up in. Any one of us then could be well familiar with the, the rivalry, with the friction that can sometimes develop between brothers and sisters. Just, I think. Suspicion, sometimes being competitive. You could be really relaxed with friends, but you really want to beat your brother. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, sometimes in, in, in family life, then, believing or assuming the worst of a brother or sister's motives. All, can be bubbly, all could have been bubbling away uh, in family life in the past or even right now in the present. And the Bible has lots of examples of siblings, lots of examples of family life. And they didn't all uh, go beautifully all the time. So here's some things that brothers and sisters sometimes say to each other. And, And each one could be connected with a biblical family Something similar could have been said. So is this familiar? Have have these words ever come from your mouth or have these words ever come to your ears? It's not fair. Why do I have to do all the work while she sits around? Does that ring any bells? Biblically, can you think, who could have said that? Or something similar? Uh, Yeah, I guess the prodigal in the story... And, and Martha and Mary. I, I wonder if some, there was something of the essence that Martha was saying to Jesus about her sister Mary. What about this one? I'm special. Dad, I'm sure Dad loves me more than you. Joseph. <laughs> and hopefully nobody else. Marvellous. Okay, this might test you, test you a little bit more. What are you doing here? You're too young. Go back home. Yes, yeah, so David heard that. His older brother was called... Ooh, 
Eliab or Eliab. So that was on the battlefield facing Goliath. David, the younger brother, comes out. You kind of wonder what was going on for Eliab, I'll call him. The oldest of quite a lot of brothers. You can think he's a soldier, he's in the army, and he's got this younger brother who's a shepherd. So the younger brother turns up almost into his on his patch, onto his turf. And you can think, what's going on for Eliab? He's probably a bit worried, isn't he? Feeling a bit threatened. I'm the soldier in this family. He's the, he's the shepherd. I don't want him here. And so, discourages his brother or thinks the worst of him. His motive for being here is no good. Um, so there's another one. Uh, that's, here's another here's something that siblings could say to each other that's mine he stole it make him give it back Jacob and Esau so Esau right back in Genesis uh, actually sold his birthright Jacob tricked him but uh, sold his birthright and then later Jacob gets the kind of blessing all the blessing from his father um, in Esau's Place. Lastly, I could kill you. Which 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 sibling in the Bible had that? Cain and Abel. We're going all the way back to the very first family in Genesis. Adam and Eve and their two sons, Cain and Abel, in the context um, of bringing a sacrifice to the Lord. Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's wasn't. Actually, we don't know that Cain said, I could kill you. We, we know that later on, he said to his brother, come out into the field. We know that God had already spoken to him. Why, is your, why are you downcast, Cain? And he doesn't, he doesn't respond. There's a, uh, <laughs> a tremendous friction and Cain resolves it by, by then killing his brother. So there are lots of biblical examples of sibling relationship that did not go well. So what are we, what are we to take from this? Just maybe drawing on that last example, we could turn to 1 John. Chapter 3 and verse 11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And and why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not Love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. On it goes. So we've seen how do we relate? We do relate relate with respect. And also what we see here, stating the obvious really, we relate and therefore speak with love. We can we can see, can't we? We can identify some of those examples from the Bible are obviously really extreme 
We can identify that, can't we, with some of the insecurities that can be pressed in us, some of the buttons that can get pressed. Because obviously, it's so easy just to start comparing ourselves with our brothers and sisters and how they're doing and what God's bringing them into. And the world says rejoice with those who rejoice, but quite frankly, sometimes we'd rather not. We can identify with some of that. But then we're reminded here. Maybe like for Joseph's brothers. Joseph's, it was a competition because they thought they were worried about how much the father loved them. And so became unloving to Joseph. If we are concerned, if we are not clear on the love and the grace of God, that insecurity can be pressed as though our Heavenly Father only has a limited amount of attention and only a limited amount of love and only a limited amount of time. I must make sure that I get, I get it. So I've kind of got to get my elbows out when it comes to family life. Well, that's, that's not the way in which we've been loved by our Heavenly Father. Kind of a slightly forgetful... What's your name again? I kind of do this all the time. Of you know, you say one name when you mean to say the other. Our heavenly Father never does that. Our heavenly Father is not limited in His time or His love. So actually, we celebrate being part of a family together because, in grace, it doesn't threaten me if someone else goes ahead or goes further. Or is more gifted. So that's what this dynamic is that we're looking for. A a way of relating that is just saturated with love. Because we've known the love of Christ. So it's not that we just apply this by calling each other brother and sister. Which is sometimes what may, may happen. We are family, so would you like a coffee, brother Rory? And Brother Rory always likes a coffee, so we're on to something good. Yeah, it's not just saying, saying brother, calling each other sister. There might be some cultures where that's, that's not twee, or that's not unusual. In fact, there'll be some, you know, perhaps African or Asian churches, where everyone's uncle, or auntie, or brother, or sister. It's more a way of relating. That's not... That's not the be-all and end-all. That's not the, the value is at how we relate. And it's just great in church life to see this dynamic at work whereby we've got a massive family of role models, people to encourage, that those who are younger can be taught and inspired and encouraged by many people in the life of the church, not just mum and dad. Um, obviously mum and dad have a formative role and a special authority uh, to train and discipline their children and, uh, and to lead them. Um, but we get the wisdom, we get a benefit of the experience and wisdom of all those who've gone, uh, gone before us. So this is not just about those who are young, this is about those who are in the prime of their late 30s really getting the benefit and the, uh, and the wisdom of the experience of those who are a bit further on and those who are in their 60s and those who are in their 70s 
They've been on the planet and have, have, have known, perhaps, if they've been a Christian for a long time, they've, they've known the Lord's shepherding for far longer. So we're brothers and sisters, sometimes with a big age gap. But if I'm speaking to somebody younger than me, I'm speaking to a brother or a sister. Because we might otherwise expect to be told, treat younger people, if we've been told to treat older people as, as though they were mother and father, speak to them with that kind of respect, we might expect that when it comes to saying, uh, relating to younger people, we're told, treat those younger than you as sons and daughters. But that's not what it says. If it did say that, it was almost like we would just imagine that our, our peer level relationships are is just to do with who's exactly at the same stage of life as we are. That's where my real fellowship is. Just that thin wedge. My cohort. My generation. Don't really relate to those who are much older than me and, and I can't understand those who are much younger than me. But I love hanging out with people who are exactly the same age and stage as I am. I think we'd be missing something if we settled for that. I think church life is we're all uh, brothers and sisters with respect and with love. Not ignoring other generations. Uh, Sometimes a a particular phrase is used, not always entirely sure what's meant by it, but the phrase spiritual parenting is, is sometimes bandied around. Now, Paul writes to Timothy and says at the beginning of chapter 1 to Timothy, my true son in the faith. And he can write to the Corinthian church and say, you've got got many guardians but you don't have many fathers. Through the gospel I became a father to you. So perhaps it's, it's appropriate for Paul in this very specific relationship with Timothy to say, you're like a son to me. And that Paul can say to the whole church, in the gospel, I've, I've fathered you. Nevertheless, I think we need to be careful with any mention of spiritual parenting, as though that's the standard way by which we disciple one another. Because I'm not sure that we can assume the authority to shape and direct someone's life spiritually as if we're a parent, just because someone's younger uh, than we are. I I think uh, there could be an overreaching there, claiming or drifting into too much control, too much of of a heavy sense of authority that I don't think is supposed to be bouncing around the life of the church. If someone says to you, you've become like a spiritual mum to me, you don't chastise them, you just think, oh, that's encouraging to know. But we're not kind of wading into other people's lives because they're younger, saying, I know what you should do, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. I think we're brothers and sisters together, able to share our stories, able to share encouragements, able to share the scriptures, not making people reliant or dependent on us. Sometimes as as believers we can just think, I just want someone to tell me what to do. I've got a decision to make. I wish just someone would tell me. That might not be a healthy desire. Because the Lord is wanting to lead you and to mature and strengthen you. There may be advice to receive. Maybe even correction or challenge. But it's not just someone pointing a finger and directing you every step. 
saying, this is what you should do. I know. Why? Because I'm older. Well, that's not good enough. We need to be far more humble than that. Learning and growing in relating to our Heavenly Father. Finally, I must have uh, got going, so I'll have to just mention this briefly. We're to relate with respect. We're to relate and speak with love. And also, we're to relate and speak with purity. Timothy is told to treat younger women as sisters with absolute purity. As I've said before, he's already been called to set an example. Uh, So in chapter 4, verse 12, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Later on, in verse uh, 16 of chapter 4, Paul will also write, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, and so on. How is this family to relate? In absolute purity. Always pure. In any and every situation, demonstrating purity. This may pick up something that Paul has already said to the Ephesian church. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, he writes, Live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity. He spent the first half of the book going, isn't the gospel amazing? Isn't it amazing that God's drawing us into the family together? Isn't it amazing that God can bring people from such distant and separate places or groups, but draw them together as one household, one new man in Christ? And then he spends the second half of Ephesians spelling out, what does that mean? It's all there. It means no hint of sexual immorality. That means that the family of God is a safe place for every younger woman. That she's not being she's not on the receiving end of of unkind, sleazy attention that makes her uncomfortable. Guys, treat your sisters with purity and respect. Even in the Song of Songs, as there's this amazing set of poems of a man and a woman uh, rejoicing in their kind of love for each other, any number of times it says that the lover describes her, my sister, my bride. So my sister has become my bride. This is bedrock of of respect and purity and honour. And yet, something grew from that relationship. It's just so important. I can remember uh, the church I grew up in, for which I have much to give thanks. It was just sometimes a culture within the youth club that I was a part of, of just serial dating. 
hopping from relationship to relationship. And I can remember one guy, I'm not saying I was spotless, but I just remember one guy kind of saying, yeah, one day I'll settle down. One day I'll meet that girl who's just right. In, almost, in my words now, in the meantime, I'm going to play the field. I'm going uh, to just experiment. I'm, I, I, this will help me in the future. And you think, look, there's a trail of destruction behind him. As hearts were broken, and people, think, people start to associate that behaviour with the church of the living God. And think, That's, I can't handle that. And, and f- try to find security and safety in a loving community somewhere else that doesn't have anything to do with the gospel. What a shocker. Now, I, I don't address this because I think it is a big issue. Not at all. I, I want us to be uh, uh, a safe environment where actually two people can kind of explore whether they're called to, to be together romantically and to get married. And you hope that that couple doesn't get pounced on and uh, uh, just ask the question the whole time. So when are you getting married? When are you getting married? Well, just don't. It also says in the Song of Songs, don't arouse or awaken love before it's ready. And so as a community, it should, we should be a safe place. The people aren't getting pounced on in that way either. But just right through the church, in any situation we are. You think, I'm not just talking to those who are younger than I am in that sense, but I know that New Day is coming up and there are other things that are going on. You think, that should be an environment where, of, of family, safety and security. Getting to know our Heavenly Father better and, and being a family that honours Him. I better stop there. (laughs) I'm going to pray. Maybe we'll we'll conclude with worship before we go and grab a drink in just a moment.